session with Dr. Farid Holakou. Good evening and welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tolakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on iTunes. Again, our studio number 310-441-0555. Before I get into the books, wanted to say a thank you to the Iranian student group at UCLA. Last Thursday, I got to be a part of their panel of peace or panel on peace uh, at UCLA, and it was a very nice event. They had a nice turnout, and um, we got to answer questions from the moderator. It was Dr. Nushin Valizadeh, but also got to answer some of the students' questions in the audience, and that was really fun. But it was a great night, and I was very honored and happy to be a part of it. So again, a thank you to the Iranian student group at UCLA for planning that event. And some people have asked me if the event was recorded, and it was, and they said they would upload it, but I don't know if they have yet. If it is, I'll share that information with you. But again, a thank you to them. All right, before I get into the book of the week from last week, this week's book of the week is The Fear of Doing Nothing, Notes of a Young Therapist by Valerie Hazanoff. The Fear of Doing Nothing, Notes of a Young Therapist. Um, I didn't know anything about this book, but saw it in the bookstore and really caught my eye or was brought to my attention. Uh, and in therapy, it's interesting because... Oftentimes people think you should be doing so much, or I can say at times, especially as a young therapist, you maybe are doing more than you need to do or doing too much actually get, get in the way of doing good, effective therapy. So that title was interesting to me, but looking forward to reading that. That's The Fear of Doing Nothing, Notes of a Young Therapist by Valerie Hazanoff. All right, the book of the week from this past week was Brief Answers to the Big Questions by Stephen Hawking, uh, one of the most famous scientists of my lifetime and recent years who passed away last year. Um, and this was a very fascinating book. Now, I've read a few books now that were released after someone had died this year, even Oliver Sacks' book. And I always have some mixed feelings about that because you wonder, the first issue I always have is, did the author... Uh, themselves want this book written and released in this way. Um, sometimes when someone has died, of course, they can't make any judgment on it at that point. And so you don't know if they really wanted this book. At times, people will release materials from other people that maybe they didn't want released or they want, want to make money off of it. And so I always have that issue. And then secondly, is it really how they intended it to be? And so apparently this book, um, it's like 10 different chapters uh, answering 10 different questions or looking at 10 different questions. And I, I don't think he was completed. It completed, com, it was completely complete. Uh, that's a little repetitive before he passed, but then it was uh, completed by members of his state and colleagues and things like that. So um, in that sense, it probably is pretty similar based on what he had said, but 
you know, there is that point, but I do want to take it at face value. And it does appear to be basically what his thoughts were about these different topics. Um, and the book was fascinating. And when you read a book like this one, and a lot of the books, you have this feeling of having a conversation with the author. Uh, and I've mentioned this in recent weeks, because when I read To Have or To Be, I was reminded of this again by one of my great thinkers in psychology, uh, Eric Fromm, that when you're reading a book, it shouldn't be a passive process. It should also be active, even though we might think of reading as just taking something in, but you should be engaging in a conversation, challenging, questioning, and be actively engaged in the process. So I tried to keep that in mind again with this book um, by Stephen Hawking. And so it was very interesting to be in this way in his mind or having access to things that he, his thoughts and having that conversation with him, although in some ways one-sided and that he can't really hear me or respond, but that I was um, having that thought in my head of questioning things, thinking of it in my own way, but also fascinated by hearing his thoughts on various topics. Um, and again, having him having passed um, also made it feel a little bit differently because you get a sense of his personality in different ways. People have talked about his sense of humor, but he does have some of that here and there and also shares some of his own thoughts. And also um, at the end of the book, after the book, the afterword was written by his daughter, Lucy, and I was very touched by that, even though it's a short, maybe five, six pages, but there were some really beautiful things that she shared. And one thing she shared is at the age of 75, completely paralyzed and able to move only a few facial muscles, he still got up every day, put on a suit and went to work. And I thought that was really touching and also inspiring. Um, and his life was very inspirational. Many of you maybe have seen uh, him in general or seen the movie about his life. Uh, the Theory of Everything, starring Eddie Redmay Redmayne, who also wrote an introduction to this book. I was kind of surprised by that, but that was also nice. Um, but he was he dealt with ALS, and because of that, slowly lost more and more functions of his muscles. It's a motor neuron disorder. And so for a lot of his life, and the way that many people remember him, he was in a wheelchair and had to talk through uh, digital means, Then he would use I think his eyes or facial muscles to control things and then uh, be able to communicate and then uh, a computer would speak for him um, but it's quite inspirational that someone who did have to do, deal with this physical disability and illness accomplished so much and I mean that he didn't let that hold him back um, really in any way and is one of the greatest scientists uh, and he was buried next to I think it's Isaac Newton and Charles Darwin which is which is pretty incredible, but um, deserved based on what he's contributed to science. So the book, of course, there was the content of it, but also in reading it, thinking about all of these things. And even when it comes to time, he talks a lot about time in the scientific sense, but he also mentions how he has this interesting perspective on time because at a young age, he was told he would only live, uh, I think, a few more years, but then he lived many decades after that. And so he said he cherishes that time, kind of like he's living on borrowed time or um, what he did not expect to have. So it, it was an interesting to read all of that. And also interesting when it comes to his personal life was that uh, he shares how in 1962, he actually went to Iran. He um, w got a travel grant from his school and he thought maybe if he uh, proposed to go to a further location, he'd be more likely to get it. So he chose Iran and he 
was in Tabriz, Tehran, Esfahan, Shiraz, and Persepolis. Um, and so he talks about that, and that was interesting for me to see, maybe for some of the listeners who uh, might have uh, Iranian backgrounds. And actually, he was in Iran when there was a massive 7.1 earthquake as well, or he was traveling during that time to leave Iran. But anyway, so that was interesting from the personal sense. But he answers these really big questions, things like, is there a God? Uh, what is inside a black hole? Will artificial intelligence outsmart us? Can we predict the future? Will we survive on Earth? All sorts of really big topics. And some of the very scientific ones, or especially when they come to things like astrophysics and cosmology, like what is inside a black hole? Um, I could understand some of it, but some of the science was beyond me. And I would read it, but not really grasp a lot of it. But it was still interesting for me to read that. And it, it reminded me of how we have faith in science, in a way, uh, as much as we might think, well, if we believe in science, it's because we believe in seeing things and knowing things. But a lot of the things that these the astrophysicists talk about, I can't fully grasp or understand. So at some level, I'm taking their word for it. And so I can love science and trust science, but at some level, I have to understand there is some faith there because I can't test everything, obviously. And even these things and reading them, I still don't understand them and I still don't have access to what they're even talking about. But uh, in a lot of ways, I try to take their word for it. But I also understand that a lot of what they might think they know, we don't know for sure because new findings and new theories can change the way we see things. Um, but it was interesting to see some of the science being discussed for example when they're talking about the dimensions and that maybe there's 10 or 11 dimensions and um, mathematically maybe they can try to show that but of course how do we conceptualize that our mind is limited and i think sometimes when it comes to these bigger questions um, it's hard for us to understand them we have to understand our limitations at time but as he says we shouldn't shy away from the big questions the first chapter talks about that that we shouldn't be afraid to ask the big questions. And not only should we not be afraid, we have to and try to understand them better. I think for me, at least personally, knowing that a lot of times we won't have clear answers, but we will get more clarity or understanding. And we have to make sure we ask those questions. Uh, but even in asking a big one, is there a God? Uh, he seems to be more on the side of no. And so in that last paragraph of the chapter, he says, do I have faith? We are each free to believe what we want, and it's in my view that the simplest explanation is that there is no God. No one created the universe, and no one directs our fate. This leads me to a profound realization. There's probably no heaven and afterlife either. I think belief in an afterlife is just wishful thinking. There's no reliable evidence for it, and it flies in the face of everything we know in science. I think that when we die, we return to dust. But there's a sense in which we live on, in our influence and in our genes that we pass on to our children. We have this one life to appreciate the grand design of the universe, and for that I am extremely grateful, end quote. Um, so he says he does not believe in God, or he thinks the simplest explanation of the universe would not include a God, or there is no need for a creator. And so with that, he also doesn't believe in heaven or afterlife um, but he does see that, say that we can live on in our genes, also our influence, and we know even evidence of that as I'm talking about his book tonight, um, but that his influence has lived on. But so it was interesting to hear his thoughts on that. Again, it's him saying 
he doesn't believe in God doesn't mean it's definitively the case, but uh, it's interesting to hear his perspectives. And so he also goes into things like, should we colonize space? And he thinks we should because he thinks that likely either from the way we're unfortunately damaging the environment, uh, we will need a new place to live eventually, or something else catastrophic can happen like a meteor similar to the one that hit, I think, 66 million years ago that wiped out the dinosaurs. So he thinks we should look into colonizing space. We should not um, wait on that or we should not think it's not important. And similarly, he thinks we should have more manned exploration of outer space. We haven't done that in a while of landing on the moon or doing things of that nature. He thinks we need to start that again because we need to to look into that. Um, also, he talks about things like, can we predict the future? And he says, it doesn't seem like we really can fully do that because at a quantum level so much is unpredictable that really to think we can predict everything seems unlikely or um, impossible but he says he's he's optimistic maybe we can find some kind of solution to the the things we can't quite understand and so we're not quite there yet uh, he also talks about time travel so this is something we see in a lot of science fiction and based on uh, relativity if there's a possibility to move faster than the speed of light, then theoretically we could go back in time. But he says that he doesn't think it's possible, although based on what we know, um, it uh, brings up a lot of things, as he says, it would cause great logical problems because, for example, if you can go back in time, if you altered something in the past, would it affect the things in the future? And then so that could lead to, th lead to things like, oh, there, are there alternate universes or is there infinite number of universes at the same time and i think that's what he means by that but he says maybe there's something that prevents that from happening or there's some explanation to that too but he thinks it's unlikely for that um and and some of the last chapters you get some more of a personal touch or at least for me i felt that way when he he does talk about artificial intelligence and he thinks that absolutely the question he poses and then answers is will artificial intelligence outsmart us and he says it definitely will and it's something we have to take seriously in how we develop it and plan for how we're going to deal with it that it's almost inevitable that it will outsmart us or become more intelligent than us and i think that makes sense i think of course he even touches on this but it depends on how we measure intelligence a lot of what computers have become good at or especially early on in the computing age age was just that computing doing computations and processing things in that way but of course intelligence the way we usually think of it is much more than that but i think it's very possible that we will be able to create machines and create artificial intelligence that will outsmart us um, but he ends that chapter with a quote that i think is true about technology in general also when it comes to things like nuclear weapons, but he says, our future is a race between the growing power of our technology and the wisdom with which we use it. Let's make sure that wisdom wins. And so we know that technology can advance, but if we as a humanity in a moral, ethical sense don't also advance, we can get into trouble. And so we've seen this with nuclear weapons and still that threat is there. And he mentions that threat in the book um, that we are at risk of extinction. We could kill everyone on the earth 
many times over with the amount of nuclear weapons we still have. And so if our wisdom um, does not win against the technology, we can be in trouble. He says, let's make sure that wisdom wins. And so he does make a few jabs here and there in political ways. He does um, say some negative things about Trump kind of in passing that he's not happy about that or he thinks that's not been a good thing or Brexit. He was in England himself and he thinks that these anti-immigration types of ways of thinking have been very bad and negative. And so you see Brexit and Trump throughout the book, I think three or four times. Uh, but I did want to end talking about his book with his own words. And this is the last paragraph that is from his own, um, before the afterward, which is by his daughter. So his own last paragraph, it's in the end of the chapter called, How Do We Shape the Future? So I'll end with this. Uh, this is, um, he's talking about how he mentioned science and we need to make sure science is still interesting or people are interested in science. And even actually before this last paragraph, he says, um, opening up the thrill and wonder of scientific discovery, creating innovative and accessible ways to reach out to the widest young audience possible, greatly increases the chances of finding and inspiring the new Einstein, wherever, wherever she might be. Um, he didn't say he or she, he just said she. I thought that was... Nice. And so this is the last paragraph. So remember to look up at the stars and not down at your feet. Try to make sense of what you see and wonder about what makes the universe exist. Be curious. And however difficult, li difficult life may seem, there's always something you can do and succeed at. It matters that you don't just give up. Unleash your imagination. Shape the future. And I'll end with that. I really like that paragraph a lot. Uh, and that was Brief Answers to the Big Questions by Stephen Hawking. I really enjoyed that book. Highly recommend it. Um, it was a great read. And so if you haven't read it yet, go ahead and do yourself a favor and buy that. Brief Answers to the Big Questions by Stephen Hawking. Going into our first commercial break, we'll be right back. Back in the first segment, I was talking about Stephen Hawking's book, Brief Answers to the Big Questions. And I mentioned that the first chapter that he writes himself talks about why it's important to ask the big questions. And so to transition from that um, into more the realm of psychology and relationships, it's always important for me to make sure in our relationships that we ask the big questions or the important questions or the difficult questions and conversations something that I talk about a lot on this show because what I experience when I work with individuals, families, and couples is that almost everyone is avoiding some very important conversations. And so I try to encourage those because I see how much they are lacking and how impactful they are when we don't have them or in a reverse way, how helpful they can be and how much they can strengthen a relationship when we ask and have those important conversations. And so at times I'll ask listeners to reflect in their own life. More than likely in every significant relationship you have, there are some unhad conversations, but especially in the big ones like your romantic relationships, it's important to have those conversations. So something that comes up in couples therapy or when you think of couples in general, oftentimes they think, 
they come to couples therapy to talk about fights they've had or arguments they've had. And of course, this can be a big part of what people um, experience in couples therapy or what might bring them in initially. And that's important. It is good. Those problems can cause a lot of uh, damage to the relationship if they're not dealt with. Also, um, when we have arguments and fights, usually they're dealing with underlying issues that might not be the topic of the conversation or the topic of the argument, but really that's what's fueling it. So for example, if you don't feel like your partner is considerate of you or cares about you, then if they're late, let's say, you might make that a big deal or even you'll realize a bigger deal because what you're upset about is not just those 15 minutes that they were late, but this underlying feeling that they don't care that much about you. And so it's triggering that. And so if you're not really asking the bigger question, the why or what's going on, you won't get to that. But so couples come in and they're dealing with those problems that come up. And then once they can't think of a problem, they think, well, everything is good. And so it's not that I'm saying we should try to create problems when ones are not there. But when we look at strengthening a relationship at times, we have to look at issues that maybe have not been brought up yet. Or sometimes it's not about a problem necessarily, but that something is missing that needs to be there. Uh, that It's not that there's a trust issue yet, but maybe the trust is not very strong. Or it's not that um, there's a lack of, uh, of or there isn't a fight happening, but there can be a lack of connection or depth of connection. I, I work with couples at times where, or just see it in general, where they, they avoid fights and they avoid arguments. And so they think, well, that means we're doing well because we're not fighting that much. But they don't realize that actually what's happening is there are these underlying issues that are there, but they're just avoiding them. They are pretending like they are not there or they're choosing to not talk about them either because they don't want to have the conflict. They're not sure their partner will be able to handle the conversation. They don't like the feelings, all those types of things. And so when we talk about the big questions, and if I talk about a difficult conversation, I'm of course acknowledging that they're difficult. They're called difficult conversations because they're not easy for us to have them. We'd rather not have them than to have those kinds of conversations. Uh, but if we don't have them, we can find ourselves in troubles down the way. And this is also why something like premarital counseling can be so important. And I encourage people in general to do it, but also my clients. Again, if the mindset is, well, go to therapy once you have a problem, that's not realizing that we can do things to strengthen a relationship. And just like in medical care and dental care, we focus on preventative measures. You get regular cleanings and checkups just to see how things are going and see if maybe a problem is developing. Or not only that, we learn about ways to promote our physical health, for example. We should look at ways to promote our mental health too. And I, I can touch on those as well, but especially when it comes to being in a relationship, there's ways we can strengthen our relationship that will help prevent problems or will strengthen us for down the line what we will experience. Because we know that relationships are going to be challenging. They're going to be hard. There's going to be things that happen on the outside that will stress the relationship and will challenge the integrity of the foundation and how strong it is. And within the relationship as well, you're going to have issues and things that come up. Arguments happen, fights happen, um, transgressions happen. We hurt each other, but hopefully in 
less damaging ways, but sometimes more damaging ways. And one of the things that's going to determine how we respond or if we can respond and survive those things that happen is how strong the foundation is of the relationship, kind of like a foundation of a home. We know that uh, wind and rain and things from the outside will will come upon that home, as will things from the inside, sometimes maybe like a plumbing issue or something, you break something within the house. And so depending on how strong the house is, the foundation, that'll help determine how much it can withstand and how it will survive or not survive, not survive those types of things. And so for me, this is why couples need to talk about what's going on. Things like, uh, are you feeling happy and satisfied in this relationship, in the different areas of this relationship? Do you feel emotionally supported and cared for? Do you feel you can be open? That's a big thing in relationships. A lot of times one or both members don't feel like they can be open and share their feelings or share if they're upset or share if they're angry or share if they're worried about something. And so you have to ask yourself, am I able, do I feel comfortable and does my partner feel comfortable to be open and to share their feelings? If not, even though that doesn't mean a fight is happening, that will and will likely lead to problems down the line and will interfere with the intimacy and closeness and in that way interfere with the strength of the foundation of the relationship that you have. So can you both be open? Can you share things? And sometimes certain feelings are okay and certain feelings aren't. Of course, usually the positive ones are. So if you're happy and excited, there's no limitations there. But sometimes the negative ones will be more of a limit. Sadness might be something you can't share or anger is something that one or both of you feels like you can't share with one another. Or sometimes you can be upset or sad about other things and other people, but you can't be sad or upset about your partner and this can be a problem. Or you can uh, have a lot of feelings, but let's say anger, they can't tolerate anger and so they make you put your anger away. This is a problem and we have to be aware of those things. Related to that is the issue of trust. Where is the trust at? And that doesn't mean you have to be checking each other's phones to mean you have trust issues or you're constantly aware of cheating to mean that there is a trust issue. But trust means that really you feel a confidence in the other person that they say or will do what they say or that you can trust them in all regards. Um, of course, within the relationship as far as sexual fidelity or romantic fidelity, but also even financially or uh, in other decisions they make in their life. Do you feel like you trust your partner? Do you feel like they're being open and transparent with you, that you can rely on them in various ways? If you don't have that, that's very important to look at and to recognize what are the things that are getting in the way and how can we build that together. So trust is another very important factor that needs to be looked at and make sure you talk about. And so I was getting before I, I touched on satisfaction and I got into the emotional, but overall how you're feeling in the relationship. Sometimes people will say, yeah, there aren't really any problems, but something feels like it's missing. And maybe what's missing is you have some unrealistic expectations or um, you're unhappy in other areas of your life. So it's not the relationship per se, but it's important to look at the relationship to see if it's something in the relationship that is leaving you unsatisfied or unhappy and to not avoid that. And this can be a very scary thing to first even think about, but then to talk about with your partner, how happy and satisfied you're feeling in the relationship. And it could be 
again, your own personal things that are going on, expectations, unhappiness in your life or other areas of your life. But it could be something missing in the relationship. There's a closeness you want. There's um, a level of connection or fun or spending time together. And these are the things that need to be talked about and brought up because these lingering issues won't go away. They'll just get worse. But until we ask those important or big questions, we won't know. At first, we have to even ask them of ourselves, but then to talk to our partner about them. And one thing I'll say in general, very often people will avoid these conversations because they think either they can't handle it, either their partner can't handle it, or together they won't be able to handle these things. And that itself should be a red flag. If you can't have these important, delicate, sensitive conversations, that itself should alarm you. Now, first, again, you have to ask yourself, is it that I have a hard time either being vulnerable or being sensitive or being serious when it comes to these things because I get uncomfortable? What is it that's going on? So don't just say, well, we can't talk about sensitive things. That means we're, we're doomed and we should break up. Try to understand it and see if there's something that could be done about it, but really try to understand that. Why can't we talk about these things? And I think most people have a hard time with them. Of course, they're difficult conversations, so they're not going to be easy. But for some people, they can be extremely challenging to the point that they completely avoid these conversations altogether because they don't think they can handle them. Especially you'll see this early on in relationships where people will say that they're afraid to bring something up because if they do bring something up, it'll lead to the breakup of the relationship. Well, that itself should alarm you. If you feel like you're stuck between either sharing your feelings or losing the relationship, or I should say you have to either hold things in or you lose the relationship, that's a big problem. If you can't talk about something with your partner, you should again be alarmed by this. It shouldn't be, well, I'll figure it out or I'll get over it or maybe the issue will change. It should be there's something wrong here. And so a lot of times you're You'll be in a relationship and the partner won't let you bring things up. They'll say either they don't want to talk about things. Um, they'll say, why are you making problems? They'll say, why do you ruin a good day? All sorts of reasons to avoid those difficult conversations and blame you for it. But I hope you'll really listen to yourself and realize your feelings are always important. I'm not saying your feelings are always uh, right or justified, or you should be as angry as you're feeling and take that on your partner. No, but if you have a feeling that should always be important to your partner to at least be able to talk about it, to be there for you, to be able to hear it. And if you don't have that again, that should be telling you something is missing. Something is not quite right. So if your partner is saying, we can't talk about these things, we shouldn't talk about these things. Why don't we just enjoy life? Or another flip way of saying this, a flip side of it is saying, well, you should be grateful about things. And um, sometimes I think people misconstrue the idea of gratefulness. I'll probably talk about that on Wednesday's show because of Thanksgiving this Thursday. But you can be grateful about something, but still not be happy about all of it. Or you can still have some complaints or things you're not happy about a certain area of that. If your friend comes and picks you up from the airport and then plays the music so loud that it hurts your ears, they can't just say, well, I picked you up from the airport. Why are you complaining about the music. You should be grateful that I picked you up. Your ears still hurt from the music, so you might ask for them to turn it down or say it's hurting your ears. They're not mutually exclusive. You can be grateful and still have things you'd like to get better. Most people, when they come to therapy, they start to talk about their parents and, oh no, but you know, my mom or my dad, they did so much for me, so I shouldn't complain. 
And of course, your parents probably did thousands or hundreds of thousands, depending on how you cut it up, of good things for you. But the ways they've also hurt you or things they haven't done or things they did that hurt you are also important. We can't ignore those. Uh, your body, you might be feeling really good and you're grateful the different parts of your body are working well, but if some part hurts or some part is really in need of medical treatment, you can't say, well, I don't want to complain about uh, my lung because so much of the rest of my body is working well and my lung has also worked well for so long. I shouldn't say right now it's not working well. That's not how it works. You can be grateful, but also be complaining or unhappy about some aspect of things. They're not mutually exclusive. You can't just be uh, or you don't have to just be perfectly grateful. You're allowed to complain in a relationship needs space for both partners to be able to complain. A complaint is about a specific thing, uh, not criticizing your partner overall as a person, but to have complaints and not be okay or happy or be hurt by certain things, and that's very important. So it's so critical to think about the big questions. Are we asking the big questions in our relationship? Are we having the big and important conversations? If you don't have them, very often a lack of those conversations will lead to the end of your relationships. Often we're afraid having those talks will lead to the fights that lead to the breakup. But again, if you can't have those conversations, that itself should be a red flag. But for me, it's more avoiding those conversations that more often than not leads eventually to the end because of the lack of strength and the lack of dealing with the issues that are really there. All right, going into our last commercial break, we'll be right back. Welcome back. So the book that I talked about tonight was Brief Answers to the Big Questions by Stephen Hawking. And in the last segment, I talked about um, asking the big questions, having the big and uncomfortable conversations, but especially in romantic relationships. In this last segment, I wanted to talk about having the big questions uh, or talking about the big questions with your kids. And so this one comes with a, a kind of a caveat. In the last segment, when it came to romantic relationships, I was saying how important it is to initiate and have these conversations. And so with your kids, that's also the case, but especially when it comes to teenagers, as I said, there's some, sort of a caveat and I'll get into that. So you want to have, um, ask the big questions and that can be challenging. And as a parent, you have to be ready to have those hard conversations. One important thing, um, just like some of the big answers or the brief, uh, the brief answers to big questions, I was saying the answers aren't so, so conclusive about these big issues of life. And as a parent, keep that in mind that you don't have to always have the answers. I think parents in general, especially Middle Eastern parents, Persian parents, they have this mindset that I have to know everything my kid asks me. What if my kid asks me something and I don't know the, the answer? Well, well, there's a pretty easy answer for that. And that is you can say, I don't know. It's okay to not know everything and actually to show them that no one knows everything and that you don't have the answer and you're not a god uh, that knows every question or every answer. And even sometimes you'll look them up or sometimes it's a complicated question. You know, this is why people sometimes even avoid questions related to sex or drugs or uh, even God or religion because they think they have to know everything. Uh, you don't and you won't know everything and don't lie to your kids and tell them that you do know everything. Show them that intellectual humility is a real and very important thing from a young age. And so you can say, I don't know. And this sometimes can take some of the pressure off of parents who might avoid topics because they, they might not know what to say. 
they're afraid, well, if we talk about sex, what am I supposed to say? If we talk about drugs, what am I supposed to say? If we talk about suicide, what am I supposed to say? And so they avoid the big conversations and the important topics because of that anxiety or fear of not knowing what to say about whatever the issue is. And we have to get over that and get past that and acknowledge we won't always know. It is good to, at times to think about it. If my child talks about uh, some topic or we want to talk about this, what do I think? Even maybe research it depending on what the topic is to be prepared. Uh, but also keep in mind that you don't have to know. You're not going to be interrogated or put on the spot and you can share with your child, I don't know. And especially when it comes to important topics, don't think of it as we're going to have this conversation and I have to solve everything and say everything perfectly this time. Usually when it comes to big topics, it's a series of conversations or really opening up an ongoing discourse and conversation about a topic. When it comes to, let's say, sex, if your child asks you at 12 or 13, that conversation might come up throughout their life and will also change based on their own development and experiences and what they hear. And so then when they have that conversation when they're 17, it'll look quite different than when they were 12 or 13. And so also that means you don't have to solve everything in one conversation. So I say all this to take some of the pressure off because I think parents at times will avoid the conversations because of uh, the pressure that they might feel. But what's so important for me is that parents show their kids that no conversation is off the table. And what you experience in a lot of families, and again, Middle Eastern and Persian families are very much like this, that there's lots of things you're never supposed to talk about. So in America, they'll, they'll talk about having the talk, which usually means when parents sit their kids down and talk about sex. And for most Persian families, this has never happened. When you say, have you had the talk or when did you have the talk? Uh, even if you're talking to a 40-year-old, they'll say, I'm still waiting on it. Maybe my parents will sit me down someday soon to talk about what sex is and how babies are made. But really, they haven't had that talk because it was so taboo to talk about sex and drugs and and uh, suicide and even lots of things related to mental health. Sometimes we have this mentality, which is not true at all, which is that if we don't talk about something, it doesn't exist. Or if we don't talk about something, we're showing that something is not okay. Or the reverse of that, by talking about something, we're saying that thing is okay. So if we talk about drugs, we're in some way telling our kids drugs are okay, they should do drugs, they should try it, it's not a problem. But we're not even going to talk about it so that they know it's unspoken or it's unspeakable in our house to talk about this issue. And that'll help them or get them to understand that it's not okay. Just like some families will say, we won't even mention our son or daughter's boyfriend or girlfriend to show them that we don't accept them full at all. And so they'll know that we don't accept them in this way we're showing them. But if we ask about their relationship or ask about the partner, we are somehow condoning or even actually worse, giving approval or acceptance to their relationship so we won't do it. But making things taboo does not help. It does not make things disappear. Your child will be exposed to uh, the issues of sex and drugs as they get older. And by not talking about it, it won't protect them in any way. It'll just make them uninformed and also unable to talk to you about it if they need your help and support or have questions and want to understand more. So for me, it's so important for parents to show their kids that all conversations are open, are okay, are on the table. And sometimes this means bringing the conversations up 
in different ways, or it can mean responding positively if your child brings them up. If your child brings up sex and you say, oh, what? Oh, I, well, and you react in a way that makes your child feel like you're shocked and almost ashamed and embarrassed, well, then you better believe your child won't want to come back to you and ask you anything related to sex and they've learned their lesson, don't bring up sex again. Or if they mention drugs and you yell and say, no one in this house is ever going to think about drugs or talk about drugs or whatever else and think you've put your foot down, all you've done is told your child, deal with this issue by yourself, not don't ever do this. And that's not going to help them and it won't allow yourself to help them and to be there for them. So make it clear that the roads are all open towards you. And the reason why I say it like that towards you is the caveat that is here is as parents, sometimes there can be a way that our questions can be intrusive. So you can ask too much or you can try to initiate a conversation your child doesn't want to have. And so here, um, if you're also teaching about sex, this term will be appropriate at times to think about consent. The child has to consent to the conversation. Your teenager has to consent. So if you say, we're going to talk about this and they say, no, I don't want to, or please don't, you can't force them to listen to you. And forcing them to listen to you itself is a problem because it shows you're doing a lecture, which is not what a conversation is. A conversation should go both ways. And so make sure they want to talk about the conversation. Sometimes parents will worry about something that they want to just force some information down their child's ears and that usually doesn't help anyway and just doesn't make them feel as comfortable where parents will keep asking questions and then that doesn't help. What I've noticed is when parents ask too many questions or are too intrusive, what that actually does is it causes your child to react to that and they give you even less. So a very common complaint that parents have of teenagers is that he doesn't tell us anything or she doesn't tell us anything, just one word answers and goes away. Um, and sometimes this obviously is part of becoming a teenager. They become more closed off. You might be used to them telling you everything and now they don't because they're going to their peers more. There's things they're figuring out. There's things they might be embarrassed to talk to you about. And as a parent, you want to give them that space. But also if you're asking too many questions or if they feel like if they answer one question, it's going to be 10 more questions. Or if they answer a question and you don't like it, you might respond in a certain way. Well, of course, they're going to tell you less. So a very common experience parents have is I tell my kid, they can tell me anything, anything. I've been so open with them and shown them they can be so open that they can say anything. And I always tell them that. But then when you see how they respond to their child, you can understand that what they're doing is not matching what they say. So if you tell someone they can tell you anything, but they say, oh, you know, mom, I tried vaping once. And then you yell at them for 20 minutes and ground them for a month and do a whole bunch of other things. Well, you haven't shown them that it's okay to talk about this conversation or to be open with you. If you're telling them that they can be open, you have to show it with your actions, not just saying that as a blanket statement that they can always be open. Really what you mean when you're saying they can be open is you want to know all their information. You want to get everything you can out of them, not I'm always here for you to talk. That's a very different thing, meaning that I'm always, you can be open, but I'm going to be open back with you and how I respond to make you feel comfortable. doesn't mean you have to say everything they're doing is good or you can't have any reaction, but be aware that if you react really strongly or punish them harshly for being open with you, that you're setting up a precedent where they won't want to be as open with you either. And so you have to keep that in mind. But that's why it's important as a parent to make sure you're showing that all roads are open towards you. I'm not going to force you to tell me anything. I'm not going to push you to tell me things, but anytime you want to talk to me about anything, this is important. And I mentioned the word suicide, and that's why even 
when suicide comes up, I think it's so important that parents respond in a way that shows your kids you can talk about it. So however it comes up, um, if you show you're up for the conversation, even if your child isn't suicidal at that time, what you've possibly done is created a bridge that is now open. This bridge is available for your child at any time to come talk to you about whatever that topic may, may be, even something as sensitive as suicide, how they know if I'm feeling it, if I'm thinking it, or if someone, one of my friends has brought it up, my mom or my dad, they won't be afraid or I don't have to be afraid to bring it up to them. And that's so crucial. So as a parent, your job is to create these bridges of communication that show your child that all roads are open, that all these bridges are open to come ask me or talk to me about anything. And so it's a little bit different than... Um, conversations between two romantic partners where really they are equal, there is a difference here as a parent that you are taking care of your child. And so you're more in the nurturing role, even when it comes to the conversations. At times you will have to initiate things. And I understand even in some more extreme cases, they might not want to have the conversation, but you might want to make sure that you have those conversations. But in general, you want to make sure the conversations are had in a way that they feel good about. And as I've mentioned many times before, one of the important things for me when it comes to these conversations is that it's a conversation and a dialogue rather than a monologue. So if you just sit down and you start lecturing your kids for 15 minutes about drugs or whatever the topic may be, that's not a conversation. Have your child ask questions, share what they know, share what they think, make sure it's a conversation and a dialogue, a back and forth. If you catch yourself talking for a few minutes straight, that should actually be your own alarm to stop and check in with your kid. Because I've seen this so many times that once the parent starts talking and talking, the child is checked out. And so you could be giving great advice or think you're changing their life, but probably they're not even listening to you anymore. So the conversation has to be two ways. And even you should think I should make sure my child is speaking more than me. If they're not speaking more than me, then either the conversation's not going in the right way or they're not feeling comfortable or they don't want to have this conversation at this time, and all of those things are okay. But the big theme today, whether it's in our romantic relationships or whether it's with our children, to not be afraid of the big questions and the big conversations and the uncomfortable conversations. The quality of our relationships and our well-being very much can depend on it. So have those talks. Think of in yourself. What are the conversations I've been avoiding or have been avoiding with your partner? As scary as it can be, ask your partner. Are there some things that they haven't brought up that they want to talk about? Or ask your child, has anything come up that they don't want to, haven't brought up so far that that would be important to talk about and give them that space. Even recognize you might ask that and they might not say anything then, but later on they might think about it when they're feeling more comfortable or something comes to them and they'll share that with you. All right, that brings us to the end of tonight's show. Thank you to everyone out there and to Amir here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delakwi. Have a wonderful night. Mm-hmm.